This is the Grant's Interest Rate Observer Podcast. I'm Jim Grant, I should say, by way of preface. With me is the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's, uh, Phil Grant, the eponymous editor of Almost Daily Grant's, and Eric Whitehead at the Controls. And today, uh, we're sponsored by eFinancial Careers, which is where you go to get a very fine financially themed job. And we are sponsored likewise by uh, Away Travel, the maker of this fine piece of merchandise. You can't see it, but it's one of the greatest suitcases ever fabricated. I think ever is the correct word. Um, Evan, so in this world of little tiny interest rates, central banks seem to be doing more of what they have done, even when they say they're not doing as much of it. Can you explain this with respect to the European Central Bank? Yeah, so today's Thursday, October 26th. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Mario Draghi came out and said that they're finally, finally going to taper their 60 billion euro QE program to 30 billion a month starting January of next year. And they'll let it sometime next year. They're not exactly sure when, but eventually. All right. And they're going to uh, raise rates, but not anytime soon. Sometime tomorrow. But, but for sweeteners, in case anybody's too shocked, they're going to reinvest the proceeds from maturing bonds to keep the portfolio the same. So it is tightening with an easing touch. Or uh, a dovish taper? A dovish taper. Velvet Thank glove? You. I think yeah. I heard that on CNBC one time. Yeah. All right. So that's that's uh, the ECB as far as the Federal Reserve System goes. Uh, there has been rumors. By the time you hear this, by the way, this all might all be moot. So we will not linger long on the potential successors to Janet Yellen, including Janet Yellen herself. I, I read this morning, Evan. In fact, I think you sent me this bulletin that the favored clients of Goldman Sachs were getting the word that Janet Yellen would be reappointed. I would note that we weren't called by Goldman, though. Right. But, you know, but I just forgot. <laughs> but if this were to occur, if Janet Yellen were to be reappointed, this would complete the prophecy, would validate prophecy uttered in these pages, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, in January. The first issue out of this year, we forecast that Janet Yellen would be reappointed and in the, uh, the tacit ways that such deals are struck, that bank credit would be found to sustain a certain real estate business, commercial real estate business, uh, that would, would have run into credit difficulties by the time the reappointment was effected. Um, that's all I'm going to say. Readers will have to read, but uh, I'm saying it's looking good for our prophecies on this score. That's one for one so far. Yeah. All right. So one of the candidates who will or will not have been appointed by the time you hear these dulcet voices is John Taylor. He is the uh, the author of the Taylor Rule, which rule uh, sets out a somewhat a complex, uh, not overbearingly so, but um, I mean, I, I can't do it here on the radio without a whiteboard. So we'll call it a complex formula for setting the federal funds rate. What we don't have to put on a whiteboard is the approximate level of the funds rate if the John Taylor rule were now in force. Evan, what would that rule, what would that rate be approximately? 3% give or take. All right. So instead of 1% give, it would be 3% give or take. Yeah. How would a 3% funds rate weigh on the yield curve? The yield curve has been flattening, Phil, is it not? Decisively so. Um, the five and 30 year spread and the two and 10 year spread are, are sitting at or near five year lows or flats, if you will. And that's primarily driven by uh, the, the short end of the curve rising faster than, than the long end has been. Right, so the yield curve is the alignment of the distribution of interest rates over over time, describes the, uh, the array of interest rates from uh, overnight to 30 years. And uh, some think, has it that a steep curve is an incitement to credit creation. If you can borrow short and lend long, that is profitable for the banks. Hence, a positively sloped curve with higher rates substantially in excess of shorter rates. That alignment is constructive for the process of credit formation. Uh, Contrarywise, if rates are flat or, heaven forfend, Evan, negatively sloped with a funds rate in excess of longer dated yields, that strangles credit formation. That is bearish for securities prices and for the people who deal 
in those prices, correct? Correct. Yeah. Well, the flattening, as Phil just described, is a little bit unscripted, is it not? I mean, uh, long ago, Alan Greenspan talked about a conundrum. They wanted longer rates to rise, and they raised the funds rate in the expectation that that prodding or stimulus would cause people to sell longer dated securities. But there was something like, I don't know, some kind of a deflationary undertow in the world, even, I don't know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And rather than rising, those rates remained the same or fell. That seems to be happening as well. They're not falling exactly, but shorter rates are rising so as to overtake them. Yeah. And it's not just market rates. The, the Wall Street Journal had an article earlier this uh, week saying jumbo depositors and high net worth individuals are demanding banks actually pay them a deposit rate. Yeah. Well, that uh, seems kind of insolent on the part of the depositor. They should know their place in the world. Uh, but, you know, I, this, this uh, business about uh, stability, these central bankers always want things to be stable, right? They want the John Taylor rule as an exercise in smoothing things and letting people know there is a, a system, there's a formula, and that if we abide by this, we will all go off together into uh, the uplands of prosperity, I guess. Is that, is that too florid? No. I would like to challenge that, and I want to challenge it by reading from a couple of historical texts. My, actually, two of my favorite ones. One is by Charles Goodhart. I think it's his, it's his PhD dissertation. Mr. Goodhart is one of the eminences of the Bank of England, and he wrote something in the day called The New York Money Market and the Finance of Trade, 1900 to 1913. Are you still there, listeners? Good. The significance of the years 1900-1913 is that they were years immediately preceding the opening of the Federal Reserve System. So uh, Goodhart uh, makes a learned study of the system and uh, the, uh, the protocols and how people did business and how the banks financed themselves and how interest rates swung about. And he observes that uh, there was no federal funds rate because there was no Federal Reserve, but there was a call money rate, a kind of a, a margin loan rate that was traded as the funds rate came to be traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, so the call money rate on the stock exchange exchange was hugely volatile, up and down. Some days it was 40% per annum. Of course, it was not like an overnight rate. But uh, we moderns have looked back on this volatility and clocked and thought to ourselves, or indeed said out loud, that, my goodness, this must have been destructive. A good heart, the scholar, says, no, actually, not destructive, because the very volatility of this funds rate kept people from, as it were, in this season of the World Series, digging in the batter's box and accumulating a lot of leverage and taking in a lot of risk because they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what was going to happen to the cost of funding. And Goodhart says here that in a country where speculative bubbles could be blown up into balloons, unchecked by any strict regulation, a long period of steady rise in share prices without loss of fear of almost certain future loss could lead to speculative feeding upon itself. What I mean to say, borrowing from Mr. Goodhart, is that the volatility of rates introduced an element of stability, paradoxically of stability, or at least of prudence into the dealings of of the New York money market in these 15 years before the Fed came along. And Goodhart judges these years to be among the, the most prosperous for the banking business and the most satisfactory for the banking business, notwithstanding the fact that the panic of 1907 occurred within that space of time. All right, that's one book. Book number two, this will be shorter. It's called Banking in the Business Cycle. One of the great classics of the obscure banking literature it came out in the late 30s. And it was an autopsy of the Depression. And the authors, the lead authors, a man named Phillips, uh, 
that the attempts to impose stability, this is during the Hoover administration, the attempts to impose stability led to disaster. He said, the futility of price level stabilization as a goal of credit policy is evidenced by the fact that the end result of what was probably the greatest price stabilization experiment in history proved to be simply the greatest and worst depression. So these are two scholarly sightings from two American historical episodes having to do with critiquing stability as a policy goal. And what are these central banks, what are they targeting? They're, start, they're targeting volatility, right? They, they want everything to be smooth. What they don't realize is the very smoothness they tend to create is causing immense disturbances under the surface of things, or indeed out in plain sight. Evan, quickly name, give us, give us an example of some absurd sighting in the credit markets that you've recently seen with your own eyes. And I'm going to prompt you, was not the collapse in the bond price of Kobe Steel the other day an example of this? Yes, you're probably thinking it was. Kobe Steel, which sold plywood as steel, has some bonds outstanding, like the 0.094267. You know how the Japanese are. Nothing can stop at the second decimal point to the right of the dot. So these bonds were trading at like, I don't know, like a 102 or something. They all trade at 102 over there. And suddenly comes out that Kobe Steel is selling plywood, masquerading as steel. The bonds go from 102 to like 85, like that. A vertical collapse, just like the uh, the um, Toys R Us bonds. Remember, they went from 95 to 20. People aren't paying attention, Evan. They aren't. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Yellen earlier this year said she doesn't expect another financial crisis in her lifetime. Well, she's not a young woman, although long life to Janet Yellen. All right. E-Financial Careers uh, is one of our proud sponsors. World's leading uh, financial services career website. Discover career changing opportunities across the industry from leading brands to niche firms. Why not take the hard work out of job hunting. Register today to let recruiters find you. Just create a profile, uh, save your jobs and create alerts, stay informed at latest opportunities, upload your resume and cover letter to quickly apply to jobs or have them apply to you. Check out the site at efinancialcareers.com. That's efinancialcareers.com. All right. Evan, what else is going on that is causing us either, uh, I don't know, annoyance is so often as the case these days or gratification? Well, a little bit of both is what's the direction of interest rates? I believe in summer of last year, um, the the U.S. 10-year yield got down to 1.36%. It did. Today, it's a little bit over 2.4%. 2.46% as we're going to, uh, as we're speaking right now. And uh, Jeffrey Gunlock, who is the new bond king, has said that 2.4% is the new bogey that if it goes over that, bad things might happen. Yes. Well, uh, certainly Jeffrey is a well-informed bond man and uh, has the record to prove it. You know, one thing that I observe from uh, having observed interest rates, especially when we had interest rates, I observe that these movements in rates, secular movements, so-called can take their sweet time. Now, the, the bond market, I think Jeffrey believes, uh, and I hypothesize, um, uh, which is a form of saying, I believe, pending evidence to the contrary. Let's say last summer was the low in rates for the cycle, beginning September 30th, 1981. That's what, 2017 minus 1981. You know what that means? A lot of years, three and a half decades and counting. So let's say that last summer was the, uh, was the peak in price, low in yield. What would that mean if it were the case? Well, all we can do and it's not very much, is to go back and look at previous cycles and how fast did rates move when they began to move? Well, we haven't got that many sightings, right? Because these bear markets and bonds come along ever so infrequently, as do bull markets and bonds. They tend to last for a generation or so. So there was a, a bear market in bonds that began in the year 1900. And I, I was uh, very young at the time. I don't recall exactly what was happening, but uh, the yields began at roughly a 3% number, the 3% on good railroad securities. And they ended up in 1920 at about 5%. 
1.5%. So like 100 basis points every 10 years. So that's not uh, so terribly frightening. So then there was a bull market. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a bear market, sorry, from 1921 to 1946. Darn, that was a bull market. That was a bull market. And then a bear market that began in 1946 and lasted until 1981. And that bear market took yields from, uh, what, uh, two and a quarter to 15% over the course of those 35 years. Big move. All right, so then comes the reaction from the year uh, 1981 to date. But let us go back to the movement up in yields, the great bear bond market of 1946 to 81. How did it begin? It began slowly. It began like the bear market of 1920 to 1900-1920. The bear market of 1946 to 81 began with the yields crawling to the upside, not spiking, but crawling. It took them 10 years to get from two and a quarter to three and a quarter, 10 years. Not until 1956 or so did long dated treasuries uh, touch three and a quarter, three and a half. So the question, I guess, at the present, let us say, that the that last year was, as I hypothesized, the low in yield, high in price. Evan, you know, there, there, there are a lot of differences this time from the previous cycles, right? The, the incidence of highly leveraged structures, the incidence of central bank intervention, these are huge new features, as have been the levels of yields, just the nominal levels of yields. I mean, there's no telling how, how this cycle, if this cycle were the beginning of a new up cycle in rates, how this cycle might play out. Yeah. In 1946, the U.S. government was heavily indebted coming out of World War II, but now everyone's indebted. I mean, the government, corporations, households, the rest of the world. Well, you know, in 19, 1946, there was a lot of financial repression in the air and on Wall Street, uh, the Treasury uh, pegged yields, the three-month bill yields pegged at three-eighths of one percent, long-dated yields at like two and a quarter. And still, some of these yields, some of the, some of the bond prices and free market bond prices were below the pegs. Is there QE too or, or something similar? Well, yeah, there was QE. The, the uh, the Fed bought up immense amounts of, of federal war debt to finance the Second World War. And this uh, this financial repression persisted till the Fed Treasury Accord 1951. So it's not as if if these uh, central bank interventions of the present day are, are literally unprecedented. They're not literally unprecedented, but they are unprecedented in degree and persistence, it seems to me, and in circumstance. I mean, central banks, from, from the dawn of central banking, certainly from the start of the Bank of England in 1694, the central banks were in the business of war finance. That was how they got their start. So whatever you think of war, whatever you think of central banks, you can kind of say, well, all right, that was that was what central banks do. What central banks have not done from that day to this, 1996, from 1694 until this, is to intervene in this kind of scale in a cyclical experiment in rate suppression and asset price levitation. This is something new. So maybe, just maybe, the ever so deliberate rhythms of bond bear markets of the past will not pertain now. I don't know. There's divided views. I, I know at our uh, conference, there's a couple of people who thought we were going into a bear market for structural reasons. I mean, I, I believe Greenspan said that the growth in entitlements is basically going to... Yes, he did. He said that. He's Alan Greenspan is, uh, you know, has been around a while, certainly has uh, seen some market movements. Indeed, he has personally caused some. Uh, he was very bearish on bonds. He talked about uh, stagflation, which is certainly a contrary call, Evan. I didn't feel, I mean, who's talking about inflation? Not many. Actually... Only, only people in the supermarkets are complaining about it. What <laughs> do they right. know? Yeah. That's right. 
And the central banks can't get enough of it. Yeah, right. Well, they can't get what they want. Uh, Keith Anderson was another speaker. What did he say? He said uh, he was certainly bearish on bonds. Yeah, he said if you actually look at how much the Fed absorbed of uh, Treasury's net issuance uh, for the last like half a decade, that there's just not been a lot of new issuance, even though federal debt has exploded. He goes, but with the Fed slowly disgorging its portfolio and uh, Treasury net issuance increasing, you're going to have this explosion in kind of so-called risk-free debt. Yeah. Well, probably negative impact on prices. Ah, how judicious of you having to say probably, because we have not yet heard from the bulls. We have not yet heard, uh, and we often quote, of course, our esteemed friends, Lacey Hunt and Van Hoisington, who have done such a great job since the year 1990 or 1890. So a long time they've been bullish on bonds. And they will tell us that the supply is of no consequence. And indeed, supply seems not to matter when uh, when the bull market rolls around. I mean, the, the Reagan build out of the public debt mattered not one bit during the 80s when yields fell and when the federal deficit exploded. Yeah, so their, their theory, um, just to summarize, is that debt is so big that any increase in interest rates would uh, crush activity, which would cause rates to fall, which is a really convenient theory that uh, so uh, you can't pay debt, so uh, if prices rise, you just you know, they fall again. I know. I don't, I don't know how this works out in the end. I mean, I, the more debt, the, the more better. Is that it for the bondholders? And isn't it usually the case, at least over the sweep of time, that uh, the more of something, the less valuable it becomes? Also, this stuff is payable in dollars, right? Which gets us back to the Fed, which puts me in mind of away travel, because sometimes I just want to get away. Remember that Snickers commercial? Right, uh, Southwest Airlines. Oh, so. want to get away. Yeah, yeah. Great, great uh, campaign. All right. So, uh, way travel. I mean, this is, uh, this is some piece of luggage right here. It's not every suitcase in which you can charge your cell phone. This one you can. Uh, material, you should see it. Well, you can't see it, but it is it's, it's radio. But uh, if it were television, you could see it and you would be as impressed as we are here in the studio. The material is sleek, extra durable. Interior design helps to keep away uh, my items neat and organized. My items too. Yeah, well, that'd be a first. Easy to carry up and downstairs because it's so lightweight, etc. meaning uh, and so forth. Key design features, all suitcases made with premium German polycarbonate, unrivaled in strength and impact resistance and very lightweight, as I might have mentioned, and also easy on the eyes. And now you get a 100-day trial, too. It's not a free trial, mind you, but it's a trial. Fair trial. Fair trial. Live with it. Travel with it. If at any point you decide it's not for you, well, return it for a full refund. No questions asked. So free shipping on any away order within the 48 states. For $20 off suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash grantspod, G-R-A-N-T-S-P-O-D, and use promo code grantspod during check out. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Grant's Interest Rate Observer on the air. 